You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and owe, and we'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It is Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So occasionally you have the opportunity to meet somebody that you feel like you've known forever, but you really have never met at all. And that is what just happened to me. I am sitting in the studio here at 45th and 9th with Abby Allen, who is an award-winning journalist, an author of a great new book called Duped that we are going to talk about. But although Abby and I have never met We don't know how that is because we seem to know so many people in common for so many years. Welcome. Thank Thank you. Abby is good friends with my cousin Larry and his wife Piper, who, if their names sound familiar, it's because they They are are Larry and Piper of Orange is the New Black. She is friends with my husband for many years. In fact, you found him his first apartment in the city when he was a single man. That's right, through my friend Ellen, whose house I'm actually staying at this week, which is totally weird. So it's yeah, so, it's so bizarre. Yeah. And in my mind, Abby will at some point be married <laughs> to my brother, which is apropos of nothing. But he doesn't know that. He however. doesn't. He has known that from time to time. Like from time to time, I'm like, when are you gonna meet Abby Ellen? <laughs> He's like, when are you going to meet Abby Ellen? <laughs> That's a good point, exactly. So. And now that we've met, you're thinking, maybe not my brother. No. no. But you've got quite a, a resume. I mean, for years, you wrote the Preludes column for um, the Sunday New York Times. You've written other books in the past. And the most amazing fun fact about you is that you named Caramel Sutra, Caramel Sutra ice cream for Ben and Jerry's. I could do nothing else in my life, and that will be the coolest thing I've ever done. Yeah. How, how did that happen? I was doing a story. I was interviewing the head flavorologist, because that is what they are called, at um, Ben and Jerry's. And they, they said, okay, and if you want to name an ice cream, go for it. And for fun, I play with words. And so I said, I do. I, I want to make an ice cream, and I want to call it Caramel Sutra. And they said, that's really good. And so that's what happened. And six months later, they called me up and they said, okay, we're going to make it. And I said, terrific. What are you going to pay me? And they said, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Talking about money. They said, nothing. And I said, well, boy, you paid Jerry Garcia, right, for Jerry Garcia. They said, but you're not Jerry Garcia, which is, in fact, the truth. So what they did is they threw me a big party and they give me coupons, Forever. As long as Carmel Sutra is on the shelf, I get free coupons. So I'm going to send you and the mister some as well. Elliot will be thrilled. He's trying not to eat so much ice cream. But right. the summer is over, and, and during the summer, he put himself on a pie diet where he was only allowed to have pie once a month in the summer. But ice cream never sort of got on that rotation. Uh, okay. And it's winter, so it's, it's a totally different thing. It's totally, it's totally fine. Let's talk about your new book. It's okay. called Duped. Double Lives, False Identities, and The Con Man I Almost Married. And it's a true story. Oh, it's a true story. It is a true story. So 
I'm going to let you tell it because I'm sure you'll tell it better than I would. But let's just say it involves Osama bin Laden, the Pentagon, and the nickname for this guy or the name that you gave him was the commander, mm-hmm. which I love. So how'd you meet him? How'd this come about? And how did you recognize that you were, in fact, being duped? Okay, so I was engaged to somebody. And let me just say out front, I, the person I was engaged to was not Osama bin Laden, just to get that out of the way. Good. So I did an article uh, for a newspaper about detox diets, and I needed to quote a doctor. And somebody had suggested a doctor in private practice in Beverly Hills. So I called this guy, and he gave great soundbite, and he told me that basically these detox diets are not—there's nothing valid about them. Great. Story did not run for a year. And so a year later, I called him up to fact check, and I said, are you still in Beverly Hills? And he said, no, I'm in the Navy. I'm living in Jacksonville, Florida. And I thought, well, that's weird, you know, and he's Jewish. And I was like, how many how many Navy guys are Jewish, you know? And he <laughs> said, there's seven of us. I'm one of them. So that was funny. And he said, I'm divorced. And I'm living in, in Jacksonville. And I, I, and I re-enlisted. And so we started talking. I actually ended up quoting him in another article. I hadn't met him. And... Um, Basically, he told me that he had always had a thing for me. He had seen my picture on my old website talking about my other book. And we started dating. He was a nice, nerdy, Jewish doctor. First night we went out, we went to the Four Seasons, and he dressed up in his army whites, his navy whites, I guess. And he brought me a cap, you know, that cap, and like like, like I was Deborah Winger, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, the, we embraced as if he had just come back from Iwo Jima. I mean, it was, you know, everyone plied us with free alcohol. And he told me that he had been a SEAL. He had told me that he works in conjunction with the CIA. He does all these secret missions. And he told me that he had been the medical director at Guantanamo, and one of his patients had been Osama bin Laden. And I said, you know— and there's this, this like danger, Will Robinson. This is not right. possible. But I was intrigued, and I said, "What are you talking about? That's mental. That would never have been able to stay secret." He said, "Well, the president doesn't know." And you know, he said he gave me all of Bin Laden's problems and all of his ailments and his height. He knew everything about Bin Laden, which everybody knows because everybody can read that. But anyway, I thought to myself, "This is not normal. Something's not right here." But then I thought, you know, what do I know? Maybe there's like this whole secret world that I know nothing about. You know, zero Dark Thirty, right? Homeland. I, mean, I have a feeling there is this whole secret world that we know nothing about. I do too. The question is, how do you go down a rabbit hole with somebody where your radar is starting to flash? Because especially if you've been single a long time, you know, you say to yourself, God, I'm so suspicious. I'm so awful. I don't trust anybody. That's why I'm not with anybody, because I can't trust anybody. And so you say, this doesn't sound right, but maybe I'm the problem here. So, all right, there's things I don't know anything about. I'm a nice Jewish girl from Brookline, Massachusetts. Like, I don't know about these things, you know? I I, I don't know about the secret underbelly. I just don't know. So... All right. I, it kept in my mind, and I thought, well, if nothing else, I'll get a story out of it, right? I'm a journalist. It's what I like. So we started seeing each other, and he said, you know, every he told me that he had met his ex-wife 
when he rescued her when uh, she was held hostage in Iran. And I said, well, when were we in Iran? I don't know. You know, the math didn't add up for it to be 79. He said, oh, it was in the early 90s, but you wouldn't have heard about it because it was a secret mission. And he told me that he had been held hostage in China and in a little room. And I said, well, what were we, when were we in China, the U.S.? He said, oh, secret you mission. You wouldn't have heard about right. it. So as this progresses, you continue to date him. It gets more serious. You get engaged. <laughs> we get engaged. And here's the funny thing. We got engaged, and I remember thinking, I loved him. He was not the love of my life, okay? But what I thought he was, which might even be worse, is that I thought he was a good, decent man. He was a doctor. He seemed to talk to his kids all the time. He had two kids. He seemed to be in okay standing with his wife, his ex-wife. He, You know, I thought he was a really good guy. And so we got engaged. And we vaguely began planning a wedding for November. This was 2010. So he proposed to me in May after about what, five months of dating? My parents got married after three months. Three months. They met in the Catskills, and they are still married. This is 50-whatever years later. So what do I know? I was 42. He was 58. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll marry him. And the things that were unsettling to me, I just sort of put away. But I remember my mother said to me, something's not right here. When I told her the bin Laden thing, she's like, Abby, something is not right. And I said to her, you are so suspicious. That's why I don't trust anybody. (laughs) So. (laughs) How did it come to a head? He would tell me all these stories. He would take off. He would go, I'm on a secret mission. I'll I'll call you when I come back. I'll I'll call you. I I can't tell you what I'm doing. I I can tell you when there's a secure line. Now, we were living in Washington, D.C., which my favorite thing about this is that we were in the Watergate, which is like (laughs) ground zero for deception, you know. So it it makes me so happy that we were living in the Watergate. And I was at Johns Hopkins. I was getting my my second useless master's in international relations. So, And he was opening up a hospital for kids with cancer. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I thought, really, it was very nicely aligned. I could do stories about that and use my new degree. And I didn't trust things he said, and I asked my teachers about it. And these were, like, people who'd worked in the White House, and they were pretty big deals. I mean, the deputy director of the CIA was there. And I said, is it possible for you to have a medal for an operation that doesn't exist? And they said, yeah, it's totally possible. So that was validating. They validated it. But we went out one night with my parents toward the end of the year, and... uh, they were in Washington, and he raved about the Brussels sprouts. Like, they were the God's greatest Brussels sprouts ever. Like, the culinary love child of Mario Batali and, you know, Anthony Bourdain. They were the greatest things ever. <laughs> we got out. We got out of the restaurant. And he said, God, that was a terrible meal. And I said, why'd you lie? And he said, well... I wanted them to feel good. And I said, nobody cared. They didn't make the food. And I thought to myself, if he could lie so easily about something so inconsequential, he can lie about anything. So that was sort of in my mind. The very final thing was over Christmas of that year, 2010, we were in Georgetown at his brother's house with his sister-in-law and their kids and his two kids. And he had given me this ring, and not this one that I'm wearing, but a different one. And... The kid, his son said to him, I overheard, what's that on Abby's finger? Is that from you? And I thought, I said to him, you told me you told your son months ago that we were getting married. And his response was, what took you so long to propose? I said, he doesn't seem to know. He said he forgot. I said, kids don't forget when their parents are remarrying. And I said, you're making 
an ass out of me, and I don't know why, but I'm out of here. It was less than a year. And I left. I, I, I'm done. So I was staying in the Watergate for a little while. He said he was going to move to his brother's house. And two weeks later, he said, you know what? The Navy needs the apartment back. He said, I'm gonna, I have to move everything out. The Navy's going to take the apartment, and you got to go back. you got to ship your stuff back to New York. I'll do it for you. And that's what happened. A few months later, I was in Washington, so I ended up commuting back to school from New York City, um, and which was fine. But I saw one night the light on in the apartment, and I called him, and I said, are you back? And he said, yeah, the Navy needed the—now they told me that I needed to stay in Washington. And so he said, comedy of errors, I had to move everything back in. And I said, well, I have some rugs there that I want to pick up. Anyway, I went to the apartment. Everything was exactly as it was when I left him. Exactly, down to a sliver of soap in the soap dish. And I said, you never left. He said, oh, yes, I did. And he, he didn't blink, he didn't do it. And I thought to myself, he's nuts, I'm nuts, I don't know what's right here. I don't know what's, I don't know. But that was the end of it. That's when I never saw him after that. Because it was just so clear that he was just out of his tree. A year and a half later, year and a half later, I got a phone call from Special Agent Dan Ryan with NCIS, not Mark Harmon. And he said there's a doctor who's been writing fake prescriptions for narcotics and Vicodin, and you're one of the people. Do you know this doctor, and do you have a prescription for Vicodin? And, you know, I said, no, I like Valium. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't have the Vicodin. And I know this guy. He said, well, you're one of his quote, victims, quote-unquote. He was writing fake scripts for everybody. He worked with the Pentagon. He was using his dead mother's name, his aunt, his ex-father-in-law, all these people. He was just an addict. He was, anyway, and he went to jail. He was not convicted of selling. I don't know if he was selling or not. It's an unbelievable story. But what's more unbelievable, I think, is that you used it as the launch pad to explore that there are so many people who are duped all the time. So let's breathe for just a second and remind everyone that stories like this are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity can help you evaluate your investment options and come up with more ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. I am talking with Abby Ellen, author of the new book, Duped. How big a problem is fraud, I guess for lack of a better word, lying, people creating lives out of whole cloth. How big of a problem is it in this country, and is it a bigger problem for women? That's a great question, and the answer is it's huge. Every time I talk to somebody about this story, about my story, they all have a story. Either they know somebody who's been duped or they've been duped, and nobody wants to talk about it because it's mortifying, because it's humiliating, because they're smart, and because, yeah, they're mostly, but not exclusively, women who've been on the receiving end. But plenty of guys, I mean, I have a whole chapter about men who've been deceived by women. Women are not, you know, when you look at, let's say, white-collar crimes or white-collar fraud, and then they have now, this has been a term that's been around for a while, but pink-collar crime, which is crime that's been perpetrated by women. And it's not so much where everybody sort of says, wow, that's a woman, but 
part of the reason there might not be as many is because women aren't in the positions to do it. So the more women step up the corporate ladder and the more women become CEOs or, you know, in the positions where they can embezzle embezzle and do that, chances are they will. Well, and money is often involved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was not—listen, I made out ahead. I got to live for free for a while. I, you know, I sold my ring. I mean, I I didn't lose money, but a lot of people do. You hear about these scams. I mean, there's the scams that are being put out by, you know, the Nigerian scams. You're getting a note. You're you're getting an email from somebody. Somebody's pretending to be your long-lost boyfriend or, you know, they love you. They need money, and you give it to them, and you've never met them, okay? That's one thing, and that's— that's a whole other thing, and that's the FBI investigates that, and that's a that's a big problem. But then you get just the ev- regular, you know, this is somebody who I'm dating, who I know. It's not some random person on the internet, and you still lose money. People can, you know. So how do you, as a woman who is out in the world dating, making friends, meeting people online, meeting people offline, how do we make ourselves smarter when? So many people are such good liars. They, they are, really are, and you really have to be so good at spotting it. There's not really this ta- the, the telltale signs that you think there are. It's not, you know. It's not like if they look this way or that way or scratch their nose. It doesn't mean they're lying. Unfortunately, what you're going to have to—you know, I go Reagan. Trust but verify. Yeah. But I am not with anybody right now. And it would take a lot for me to really trust somebody. So that's just my way of saying you have to be really, really careful. So how do you go out there and trust somebody? I think you have to go so slowly. And That's I, not the world we're living in. I know it's not. That's why I'm single. I, I, it's not. <laughs> it's not. You know, these Internet search engine things where you can learn about people, they, they're doing pretty good businesses. And—, and Trustify is one of the websites, and they have PIs. People are hiring a lot of detectives to check people out. In fact, I heard, learned of a matchmaker who was doing that. She was hiring detectives to check out her the guys. She, she should check out everybody, frankly. Absolutely. It's not just men. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you got out of this relationship, mm-hmm. I know you're not in one now, but how did it change both the way you approached dating and the way you approached money? It's a good question. I have to say, I think I went through a PTSD. And remember, I got out. A lot of people stick around and they find out 20, 25 years later that their husband had another family or, you know, their father had another child or whatever. So I was really pretty lucky. Um, but it's slower. It's the only thing. It's so, it's, it's so slow, it's non-existent. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and as far as money, you know, I was always taught as a kid— as a girl, women have to have their own money. My parents are married, but I was always taught that. You have to rely on yourself no matter what happens. Before I was with this guy, and I own my apartment here in New York, I called a lawyer up before I was going to marry him. And I said, can he get his hands on my apartment? And they said, no, if it's in your name, he cannot. I said, what about credit card debt? Can I accumulate his debt? And they said, no, you can't accumulate what, you, what he had, but anything he incurs while you're in the marriage, you can. And I remember being really scared of that. So it was my point is you have to think about these things, which nobody wants to think about when they're in love, right? Well, and so many women, I would say of a certain age, but not really of a certain age. They're, they're just a lot of women who have divided and conquered when it comes to the management of the household finances. And 
somebody's the investor and somebody's the bill payer. And we take our eyes off the ball. And you you interviewed women for your book who took their eyes off the ball and really lived to regret it. The White Collar Wives. I met a woman who has a, her name is Lisa Lawler, and she's terrific. And she started a group called White Collar Wives for women whose husbands have committed white collar crime. And the fallout and how the family suffers because nobody really thinks about the the family. They don't think about the kids. They think about the, the perp. How did he do that? You know, why did he do that? It's the same with imposters. We're fascinated by them. But what about the quote-unquote victims? So, and I did this story in the New York Times about the white-collar wives. It's these women who said, still today, in 2018, yeah, I let my husband be the man of the house. He was the one who was in charge of the money. He brought it home, and I just said, okay, great, I'm cashing the check. And they took their eyes off the ball. And they also were uneducated, so they had no idea what their husband was doing. They had no idea what, what he was doing their money. But, you know, how do you become educated? Well, we listen to someone like you. I can't even add. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, for me, if you, my husband, everybody thinks that these women were colluding with the husbands, but I cannot add. So if my husband was rejiggering numbers and, you know, doing whatever Bernie Madoff was doing, for example, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't get it. I, I just don't. So you have to be super careful. You have to insist on going to you have to insist on going to the lawyers. You have to insist on going to the financial advisors. You have to insist on women do and all of that stuff because ultimately you got to protect yourself. I think that's the underlying lesson from all of this. I mean, we go out into the world. We meet a lot of people. Hopefully we fall in love. Hopefully we fall in love more than once. But you do. You have to have your own back because you can't. And I know it sounds cynical. You can't count on other people to have it for you. So you talk about the white-collar wives. What advice do they give to other women? Be smart. Don't sit back. Don't just go and get your MRS degree in college and expect that once you get married, that's your husband's going to take care of everything. Because, again, you have to take care of yourself. And, and that really is the message. You have to be smart. And, you know, you can love somebody, but you don't have to be with them. Abiel and the book is duped. I am glad that you got out in time. Thank you so much for <laughs> Thank being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And we will be right back. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Kelly Hultgren, our producer. So I am no longer dating. I don't think <laughs> I've ever dated anybody who was a total That's crazy. fraud. You know, actually, I did date a guy. Ooh. Ooh, please tell. He wasn't a fraud, but he did, years after I dated him, Mm -hmm. go to jail. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's, you're jumping from A to Z. We need something in the middle here. So when I, when I, when I knew him, and I only dated him for like a little while because he lost interest in me very quickly. He was like a boy wonder genius writer at Time Magazine. Okay. And um, then he kind of, I don't know, he he went off on a tangent and got very political and moved to a state where you're allowed to have weapons and had a weapon. And I don't know if he actually shot somebody or was just in a bad situation Mm. where firearms were involved. I don't know the details. I do know that jail was involved. Dang. And, And I always have thought, like, 
well, thank God he thought I was boring. Right. You know, thank God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't think I've dated anyone who's gone to jail. I've never really been attracted to the bad boys. But that's what's tricky. missed out. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) But that's what's tricky is, like, these. some of them— don't come off as bad boys. Like her in her story, for instance. Right. Like, you know, he He's a, he came off as a nerdy Jewish uh-huh, doctor. Uh-huh. And was not, apparently. Um, but no, you're the point you brought up too about people dating online these days and how more easily we can be duped, I think, of catfish from mm-hmm. MTV and Facebook doing fake profiles. But also like we just have more time to orchestrate these lies or these fraudulent personas. One of the things that I think is important to explore is that it doesn't have to be a big lie to hurt. It can be a little lie. It can be a small amount of financial infidelity. I Mm. mean, think about all the readers and listeners that we've heard from who have spouses who've just racked up credit card debt that they didn't know about. Right. right? That's extremely hurtful. Mm -hmm. It is dangerous to the family. It's not Osama bin Laden, right? No. It's not it's not that. It's a little different. It's not that but it is really really damaging to a relationship and to your personal financial situation. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Abby, I had read about her book when she wrote the piece for the New York Times mm-hmm. and asked her to come on and talk about it because I think we all have to open our eyes a little bit more when it comes to getting honest with the money. What's the advice for women who are single and dating or who are in relationships, no matter the context or how long you've been in a relationship, to keep your eye on the ball more if you haven't been? How can a woman easily transition into wanting to be more involved with the finances without you know, insinuating that she doesn't trust her husband or she doesn't trust her partner. I think you almost approach it as if it's a responsibility on their part and on your part to bring you in. Look, something can happen to your partner, Mm. right? It doesn't even have to be a dire situation. There could be a massive coastal storm and your partner could get stuck on the other side of the country And there might be important papers that have to go out, bills that have to be paid, things that have to get done. Maybe Internet is out in that coastal area, Mm -hmm. and you've never done it, but you've got to do it or everything's going to be late. Mm -hmm. Right? It doesn't have to be life-threatening, but if something were to happen to your partner and you wouldn't know what to do, that is a really bad situation, not just for you, but for them. Mm-hmm. And and for the good of the unit, they should bring you along. And so I think just saying, I'm not comfortable not knowing, you know, use the scenario. I always love using something that happened to somebody I know. Nice. You know, yep. ugh, my mother didn't know how to do this when my father died, although my mother was a rock star and, of course, knew how to do everything. But, you know, my mother didn't know how to do this. I am afraid of being in that situation. Please show me. Let me just sit with you while you do this a couple of times. Then maybe I'll do it. Maybe you'll decide you don't like doing it after all, and maybe I'll help you do it. So you just, you approach it like that. And if there's reluctance, that's where you get a financial advisor and you have a family powwow and you discuss how everybody can get informed and integrated. 
Great advice. Okay. I Thank asked you. my question. Now All right. Now let's some ask some of our listeners questions. Our first question is from Lisa. I am a financial resource for my elderly mother. I am unmarried and in my mid-40s. Should I have life insurance coverage? My second question is, since I am unmarried, should I be looking into long-term care policies in the event that I have medical issues later in life? Um, yes, and yes. Yes and yes. And there's a third yes that she didn't ask about, <laughs> but I will give you the answer to that one too. So yes to the life insurance. Life insurance is for anybody who has dependents and your mother is a financial dependent. So yes, you need life insurance to provide for her. You probably want to get a term life policy because your mother will likely predecease you and that at that point if you have no other dependents, you can get rid of that policy. The second question was about long-term care insurance. Um, But before you even get there, you should look at disability insurance. If something were to happen to you and there was no other income in the picture, then what? That's when you need disability insurance, which is more important for singles than it is for people who are married and have a second income in the picture. And disability insurance and long-term care insurance often are sort of flip sides of the same coin. One is for your working years. One is for after your working years, typically. But yeah, I would say look into long-term care insurance as well. Uh, Sometimes there are hybrid policies that bridge Mm. life insurance and long-term care, but it's the same type of insurance agent who sells all three types of policies. And you are, at 44, approaching the age at which it typically makes sense to buy long-term care insurance, which is about 50. Okay, great. Now we'll do one from Janet. I'm in my early 60s now, and I'm heading towards retirement in a couple of years. My question relates to being sure I have enough money saved for retirement. Could you share your thoughts on the very best ways to determine if you have enough saved for retirement and if the 4% withdrawal rule applies anymore or any other principles to use? We have created a detailed financial plan which indicates we have enough, but I would still like to hear your thoughts on this topic. I would also appreciate if you could have some future guests who can talk more about the topic of money and retirement, as that is now top of mind for me. We will absolutely do that. We haven't done one in a while. Focus more on, like, right as if you're going into retirement. Yeah, and the question makes me, of course, think of the benchmarks mm-hmm. that Fidelity laid out. And they are, I think, really helpful to just know if you're on target. So let me just explain. These were developed for people who earn between $50,000 and $300,000 a year. And basically, they are set up in a way so that if you achieve these benchmarks, you should be able to um, maintain 85% of your, cover 85% of what you're spending pre-retirement when you combine your savings with Social Security. So at age 30, you want to have put aside one times your annual income at 43 times, at 56 times, at 68 times, and by the time you retire, 10 times. And before anybody sends me hate mail because these (laughs) benchmarks sound really, really hard to achieve, you hear me talk about saving 15% of whatever it is you're bringing in, and that is including matching dollars. If you're doing the 15%, you're going to hit these marks. So... That is what it is. And I'd like to say that these benchmarks are scary at any age. Yes. I've heard. 
myself included. And this also reminds me of the Dan Ariely piece. And we hope to have Dan back on the show too. But this idea that how much you should have saved for retirement, it's going to change per person based off the type of lifestyle you want to live. And we don't talk about that enough, I think, when we're talking about 4% and this, you know, the benchmarks as well. Yeah. So Dan's point, and I didn't answer the 4% part of your question, but I will. Dan's point in this recent piece for the Wall Street Journal, which you should all look up, was that many people are not finding they have enough for retirement because of how they're living in retirement. We're so young. We're so healthy. We're so vital. Of course we want to travel extensively. Of course we want to play a lot of golf or start businesses or do other things that cost a lot of money. And that's not the way that previous generations lived in retirement. Previous generations puttered. They Mm -hmm. went next door to see the grandchildren because the grandchildren actually lived next door. It was a very, very different thing. Plus, they died a lot earlier, so the money didn't have to last nearly as long. Real quick on the 4% rule. I think it has been tested. It was tested shortly after the markets cratered in the last part of the last decade. And what we learned was that if the market takes a significant dip during the early years of your retirement, you really have to be more careful and you can't withdraw the full 4%. You should be closer to 3 or 3.5%. And you also have to keep in mind that that 4% is always a moving target. So if your portfolio is up, you can take a little more. But if it's down, you have to take a little less and accommodate. All right. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And now in our weekly Thrive segment, we're going to stay with the theme of couples and money. Who do you think should pick up the check on a date, the man or the woman? Well, there is no textbook answer to this question, and it can lead to some awkward situations when the check comes to the table. According to a study conducted by the academic journal Sage Open, 76% of men feel guilty if they don't pay on a date, yet 64% thought women should contribute to the tab. Mixed messages, I would say. Nearly half the men surveyed said they would ditch a lady who never paid, but on the flip side, 40% of women reported being bothered when men wouldn't let them pay, and almost as many wanted men to turn down their offer and pay themselves. In other words, we want to have our cake and eat it too, and so do men very clearly. So what do we do? For starters, Wall Street Journal writer Elizabeth Bernstein, who wrote about this study, suggests never splitting the bill. Instead, the person who asked for the date should pay, and to duck even more potential awkwardness, try establishing who's going to pay before the bill even comes to the table. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Abby Ellen for a really thought-provoking conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.